Michelle, <clears throat> how are you doing today? I hope you are enjoying the weather and getting some sunshine or just enjoying the weather, period, without a mask. Last couple of days, I hadn't been feeling well, so I didn't uh, post on Monday and I barely posted yesterday, but I'm happy to say that today I am much, much better. And there is a lot to unpack uh, regarding what has been happening uh, in these past couple of days. Uh, Number one is Andrew Cuomo resigning. He's resigning. He has resigned. He will be out of New York in 14 days. Effective. Immediately. In 14 days. And I can't tell you how I have mixed feelings regarding this because while his resignation was long overdue, he's not going out for the actual crime of mishandling the COVID-19 crisis. Those people died, unnecessarily died. They died. Because Governor Cuomo, and you, you know this, I'm just repeating old news, decided to take infected people and put them in nursing homes. Insist, in fact, that nursing homes take these infected people amongst people who are already vulnerable, the elderly. We knew that then. We know that now. 
the most vulnerable, vulnerable population, the elderly. Thus contributing to the high death rate in New York City. There was a hospital ship and a hospital built in the park. I forgot the name of the park, I'm sorry. But there was there was a hospital. They built the hospital. The army or somebody built the hospital in a park. On top of that, President Trump sent the hospital ship. But did Cuomo use those those tools? No. No, he did not use those tools. And on top of that, after he realized what he had done and the numbers of deaths in the nursing home, he tried to cover it up. He tried to downplay the numbers. Or downgrade. Whatever one does with numbers, but he he he, he tried to, to to steer it toward less, and we know this because his aide blew the whistle on him. I believe it's she. She blew the whistle on him. So in a way, it looks as though he's kind of sort of skating on that. But what brings him down is his harassment of women, the allegations of harassment. The allegations. And someone pointed out to me that if these things, these the the, the nursing home deaths and uh, the sexual harassment allegations happened or occurred or or yeah or you know reared their ugly heads in separate incidents and in separate occurrences, uh, in other words, far apart. I don't believe that there would be talk of resignation right now. He would skate. He would skate. There would be no, uh, no, no backlash, no punishment. He, he would go pretty much free. Because that's what they would do. They would obfuscate it all. That's what they would do. I mean, you know, he was caught trying to ruin the reputation of this woman, discredit her, who was one of his, his accusers. So he gives this speech, 
which, um, well, <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. You have to listen to it. I'm, I'm going to let you listen to it in your own words if you have not heard it already. Um, but, you know, you can skip ahead. And I'm going to put my, my little three-cent spin onto it because it's worthy. I mean, I don't know what else to say, but I'm going to let you listen to it in, in his own words. several issues today. Uh, first, I've always started by telling New Yorkers the facts before my opinion. So let's start New York tough with the truth. The Attorney General did a report on complaints made against me by certain women for my conduct. The report said I sexually harassed 11 women. That was the headline people heard and saw and reacted to. The reaction was outrage. It should have been. However, it was also false. My lawyers, as you just heard from Rita Glavin, have reviewed the report over the past several days and have already raised serious issues and flaws that should concern all New Yorkers. Because when there is a bias or a lack of fairness in the justice system, it is a concern for everyone, not just those immediately affected. The most serious allegations made against me had no credible factual basis in the report. And there is a difference between alleged improper conduct and concluding sexual harassment. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that there are not 11 women who I truly offended. There are. And for that, I deeply, deeply apologize. I thought a hug and putting my arm around the staff person while taking the picture was friendly, but she found it to be too forward. I kissed a woman on the cheek at a wedding and I thought I was being nice, but she felt that it was too aggressive. I have slipped and called people honey, sweetheart, and darling. I meant it to be endearing, but women found it dated and offensive. I said on national TV to a doctor wearing PPE and giving me a COVID nasal swab, you make that gown look good. I was joking. Obviously, otherwise I wouldn't have said it on national TV, but she found it disrespectful. I take full responsibility for my actions. I have been too familiar with people. My sense of humor can be insensitive and off-putting. I do hug and kiss people casually, women and men. I have done it all my life. It's who I've been since I can remember. In my mind, I've never crossed the line with anyone, but I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. 
there are generational and cultural shifts that I just didn't fully appreciate. And I should have. No excuses. The report did bring to light a matter that I was not aware of and that I would like to address. A female trooper relayed a concern that she found disturbing, and so do I. Please let me provide some context. The governor's trooper detail had about 65 troopers on it. But of the 65, only six women and nine black troopers. I'm very proud of the diversity of my administration. It's more diverse than any administration in history. And I'm very proud of the fact that I have more women in senior positions than any governor before me. The lack of diversity on the state police detail was an ongoing disappointment for me. In many ways, the governor's detail is the face of state government that people see. When I attend an event, people see the detail that's with me. I was continuously trying to recruit more to diversify. On one occasion, I met two female troopers who were on duty at an event. Both seemed competent and impressive. And I asked the state police to see if they were interested in joining. I often meet people, men and women, and if they show promise, I refer them to be interviewed. The state police handled the interviewing and the hiring, and one of the two troopers eventually joined the detail. I got to know her over time, and she's a great professional. And I would sometimes banter with her when we were in the car. We spent a lot of time driving around the state. This female trooper was getting married. And I made some jokes about the negative consequences of married life. I meant it to be humorous. She was offended and she was right. The trooper also said that in an elevator, I touched her back. And when I was walking past her in a doorway, I touched her stomach. Now, I don't recall doing it, but if she said I did it, I believe her. At public events, troopers will often hold doors open or guard the doorways. When I walk past them, I often will give them a grip of the arm, a pat on the face, a touch on the stomach, a slap on the back. It's my way of saying, I see you. I appreciate you, and I thank you. I'm not comfortable just walking past and ignoring them. Of course, usually they are male troopers. In this case, I don't remember doing it at all. I didn't do it consciously with the female trooper. I did not mean any sexual connotation. I did not mean any intimacy by it. I just wasn't thinking. It was totally thoughtless in the literal sense of the word, but it was also insensitive. It was embarrassing to her and it was disrespectful. It was a mistake, plain and simple. I have no other words to explain it. 
I want to personally apologize to her and her family. I have the greatest respect for her and for the New York State Police. Now, obviously in a highly political matter like this, there are many agendas and there are many motivations at play. If anyone thought otherwise, they would be naive and New Yorkers are not naive. But I want to thank the women who came forward with sincere complaints. It's not easy to step forward, but you did an important service. And you taught me and you taught others an important lesson. Personal boundaries must be expanded and must be protected. I accept full responsibility. Part of being New York tough is being New York smart. New York smart tells us that this situation and moment are not about the facts. It's not about the truth. It's not about thoughtful analysis. It's not about how do we make the system better. This is about politics. And our political system today is too often driven by the extremes. Rashness has replaced reasonableness. Loudness has replaced soundness. Twitter has become the public square for policy debate. There is an intelligent discussion to be had on gender-based actions, on generational and cultural behavioral differences, on setting higher standards, and finding reasonable resolutions. But the political environment is too hot and it is too reactionary for that now. And it is unfortunate. Now, you know me. I'm a New Yorker, born and bred. I am a fighter. And my instinct is to fight through this controversy because I truly believe it is politically motivated. I believe it is unfair and it is untruthful. And I believe it, it demonizes behavior that is unsustainable for society. If I could communicate the facts through the frenzy, New Yorkers would understand. I believe that. But when I took my oath as governor, then it changed. I became a fighter, but I became a fighter for you. And it is your best interest that I must serve. This situation, by its current trajectory, will generate months of political and legal controversy. That is what is going to happen. It will consume government. It will cost taxpayers millions of dollars. It will brutalize people. The State Assembly yesterday outlined weeks of process that will then lead to months of litigation. Time and money that government should spend managing COVID, guarding against the Delta variant, reopening upstate, fighting gun violence, 
and saving New York City. All that time would be wasted. This is one of the most challenging times for government in a generation. Government really needs to function today. Government needs to perform. It is a matter of life and death government operations. And wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do. Because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. Kathy Hochul, my lieutenant governor, is smart and competent. This transition must be seamless. We have a lot going on. I'm very worried about the Delta variant, and so should you be. But she can come up to speed quickly, and my resignation will be effective in 14 days. To my team, Melissa DeRosa, Robert Mejica, Beth Garvey, Stephanie Benton, Dana Caratanudo, Kelly Cummings, Rich Party, Howard Zucker, Rick Cotton, John Lieber, Jack Davies, and the hundreds of dedicated administration officials. I want to say this. Thank you. Thank you. And be proud. We made New York State the progressive capital of the nation. No other state government accomplished more to help people. And that is what it's all about. Just think about what we did. We passed marriage equality, creating a new civil right, legalized love for the LGBTQ community, and we generated a force for change that swept the nation. We passed the SAFE Act years ago, the smartest gun safety law in the United States of America, and it banned the madness of assault weapons. We've saved countless lives with that law. $15 minimum wage, the highest minimum wage in the nation, lifting millions of families' standard of living, putting more food on the table and clothes on their backs. And we led the nation in economic justice with that reform. We have managed every emergency Mother Nature could throw at us. Fires, floods, hurricanes, superstorms, and pandemics. We balanced the state budget and we got it done on time, more than any other administration, because government should work and perform. Free college tuition for struggling families. Nobody in this state will be denied their college dream because of their income. We've built new airports, rail, transit, roads all across this state, faster and better than ever before. And more than any state in the nation, the most effective green economy program in the nation, we did more for black and Latino families 
than any other administration. We did more for working families. We did more for our union brothers and sisters. We did more to battle racism and anti-Semitism. Today, so much of the politics is just noise, just static. And that's why people tune it out. What matters is actually improving people's lives. And that's what you did. You made this state a better state for the generations that follow. And that is undeniable, inarguable, and true, even in these ugly, crazy times. I thank Speaker Carl Heasty and Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins for their leadership. And let me say this on a personal note. In many ways, I see the world through the eyes of my daughters, Kara, Mariah, and Michaela. They are 26 and 26, twins, and 23. And I have lived this experience with and through them. I have sat on the couch with them, hearing the ugly accusations for weeks. I have seen the look in their eyes and the expression on their faces, and it hurt. I want my three jewels to know this. My greatest goal is for them to have a better future than the generations of women before them. It is still in many ways a man's world. It always has been. We have sexism that is culturalized and institutionalized. My daughters have more talent and natural, natural gifts than I ever had. I want to make sure that society allows them to fly as high as their wings will carry them. There should be no assumptions, no stereotypes, no limitations. I want them to know from the bottom of my heart that I never did and I never would intentionally disrespect a woman or treat any woman differently than I would want them treated. And that is the God's honest truth. Your dad made mistakes and he apologized and he learned from it. And that's what life is all about. And I know the political process is flawed and I understand their cynicism and distrust and disappointment now, but don't give it up. Because government is still the best vehicle for making positive social change. Lastly, I want to remind all New Yorkers of an important lesson and one that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. And that's what you New Yorkers did in battling COVID. The enemy landed in New York State. COVID launched the attack here. It came on planes from Europe, and we had no idea. It was an ambush, and it was up to New Yorkers to fight back. We were on our own, and it was war. Nurses, doctors, essential workers became our frontline heroes. Hospitals became the battlegrounds. Streets were still, and sirens filled the city's silence. 
trailers carried the bodies of our fallen brothers and sisters. But you refused to give up. And you fought back. And you won. Going from the highest infection rate in the nation to one of the lowest. No one thought we could do it. But you did it. You led the nation. And you showed the way forward. And how you did it is what's most important. You did it together. Not as black New Yorkers or white New Yorkers, not as LGBTQ New Yorkers or straight New Yorkers or Democrats or Republicans or upstate or downstate or Jewish, Muslim, Protestant or Catholic New Yorkers, but as one community, one family, the family of New York. You overcame the naysayers and the haters and the fear and the division and you unified and you rose and you overcame and you saved lives. And that was powerful in its effect. It was beautiful to see and it was an honor to lead. Please remember that lesson. Hold it dear and hold it up high for this nation to see because it is New York State at her finest, creating her legacy, fulfilling her destiny, giving life and animation to the lady in the harbor, saying, Excelsior, we can be better, we can reach higher, and proclaiming e pluribus unum, out of many one unity community love that is our founding premise and our enduring promise and that is the salvation of this nation that it so desperately needs to hear thank you for the honor of serving you it has been the honor of my lifetime god bless you I'm going to take a quick break um, because uh, what I want to say about that speech is um, going to exceed my segment time. So I'm going to bring it over to the next segment because it is a lot. So for those of you who have made it with me this far, thank you. Uh, hope to hear from you through voice message. We'll leave a link in the, in the description. But for now, that closes out this segment, uh, and I will see you in the next one. You are listening to the Black Eye Podcast. Hello. And welcome back to this second segment. I had to stop because I only have a lot of time for my segments and podcasts. So I didn't want to run out of time and then be talking and then nobody's listening. Um, so you heard the speech. Um, all I could do was eye roll and uh, suck my teeth, and then I had to go back and I had to re-listen to the speech because it, there was so much to unpack here. So much. So much, so much, so much. So I wanted to 
start off with what he says. You know, there's something wrong with the system, um, the justice system. And I always find that very interesting with liberals. Um, when it comes to them, there's something wrong with the justice system. They all seem to echo that same, um, that same, well, they beat that same drum, you know. Uh, Stacy, what was her name? Abrams. You know, she, she said that there is something wrong with the election. And the election cheated and she is still the governor and she will not concede. There's something wrong. But if a conservative said it, if Trump says it, then they're crazy. You know, the double standards, the, the hypocrisy was real. There's always a flaw in the system when it comes to them. Um, he said he had this off-putting and insensitive sense of humor. This irked me to no extent. I had to go back and listen to it again because this, this is what um, is the crux of his entire behavior thing. He knew what he was doing. He knew that his sense of humor was inappropriate. He knew it was off-putting, and he knew it was sensitive. Those were his words, insensitive and off-putting. He knew that. He knew it made people uncomfortable. But he continued the behavior anyway. He continued to make inappropriate jokes. jokes. He continued to be disrespectful. He continued his his behavior. He continued it. And he says, you know, I've been this way all of my life. Which translates to I have been getting away with it all this time. So here is this man who has been saying some insensitive things to women, has been uh, you know, his off-putting sense of humor. Uh, he's kissing people when they don't want to be kissed. He's touching people when he doesn't want to be when they don't want to be touched. But this is what he says. He says, "Excuse me." In his mind, he never crossed the line. In his mind, he never crossed the line. Again, with the behavior. So he understood something. He understood what he was doing. But in his mind, he could get away with it. He could do whatever the heck he wanted to do. And it was just him being him. Quirks. Lovable quirks. He went on to say that he, he, he likes to thank the troopers by touching them, by squeezing their arms, by, uh, you know, patting them on the back and all that kind of stuff. Male and female. Well, you know, he said mostly it was male. My thing is, why do you have to touch anybody at all? If you want to acknowledge the troopers, why don't you just say thank you, call them by their name, and, and move on? Why do you need to touch them on the back or squeeze their arm or touch their stomach? He talks about generational differences and cultural differences. 
I guess he has been living under a rock for how how long has he been living under a rock for? Because he couldn't he couldn't possibly said that with a straight face. Whether you want to know or whether you don't want to know, you know that you can't go around touching people without their permission. You can't look at people without, you can't even compliment anybody. You, you can barely say that's a lovely dress. You can barely say your hair looks good today. You can barely say anything remotely. Remotely. It doesn't even have to be suggestion, suggestive, but or, or 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 predatory. But you know that there are new boundaries set. You know this. Sexual harassment claims have run amok. They are plastered all over the paper. They're plastered all over the internet. They are plastered everywhere. You know you cannot get away with touching people without their permission. New York City, New York, right now, New York, has a law that if a woman has a drink, or anybody has a drink, that because they have a drink, they cannot give consent. That's a law. He's the governor of New York. So you mean to tell me that you knew that you, you know, you, you didn't know and you had three daughters. And this is the thing he, he keeps saying, I live my life through my three daughters. You know, you don't. You don't. He didn't live his life to his three daughters. Then he says he was grateful to uh, Letitia James, the, the district attorney there, who found, you know, who uh, did this thorough investigation. I don't know, it's a lot of pages. Thorough investigation. Because it made him realize that people's boundaries need to be respected. Really? And this is what made his speech so cringeworthy because all it tells you is that he was driving around on the alternate reality bus in his own world, in his own fiefdom, thinking he could do whatever the hell he wanted, whenever the hell he wanted, and everybody was supposed to accept it. You didn't know you were not supposed to disrespect other people's boundaries? You knew your jokes were insensitive and off-putting. You knew those. You knew your jokes were insensitive and off-putting, and yet you did it anyways. And I'm sorry, but I do not believe under any circumstances that this man did not know that you cannot go around touching people and saying certain things in, in uh, disrespectfully and that that was not wrong. 
innocence. I didn't know. I didn't realize. Of course he couldn't. He, he, there are no excuses because he can't give any. He knew he was wrong. His behavior was wrong. And then he goes on to say that it's politically motivated. And I don't deny that it is. I mean, I think personally, the motivation uh, politically is that whomever is in charge does not want him to run for president. And um, he has outlived his usefulness. He's gotten too big for his britches. Probably talked wrong, talked disrespectfully to the wrong person. I'm sure he talked disrespectfully to all the wrong people. But he, you know, got too big. And he got checked. He got checked. So now he, he this this investigation taught him. Taught him. They can't go around touching people, kissing people, um, you know, whatever he thinks he's doing, being nice to people by disrespecting their boundaries. I mean, just not too long ago, Joe Biden had a thing going where he was disrespecting the little girl's boundaries and other people had come forward. This time, a full investigation was conducted. And this couldn't be brushed under the rug. This couldn't be swept away. Are there political machinations involved? Oh, yeah. But it was his own proclivities that brought him down. His own proclivities. Not Twitter's, uh, you know, and he's, he's trying to blame it on Twitter and, and, and the noise and all that. Noise? Dude, there was an investigation. Hundreds of pages of investigation, of testimony, of what you've done. And you can't chalk it up to quirks, lovable quirks. This is who I am as a person. That is not the room that you live in. That is not the room that any of us live in. You have to be oh so careful about anything you say to men and women i mean you can sit here and be nice to a man and, and he can take the wrong idea you 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 have to be careful especially you know you are the governor the governor of a state you just saw what your president went through when he was a candidate but see, there was no investigation on that. There was no investigation. And so they were able to sweep that young lady under the rug, even though it's evidence and proof that she had been talking about this long before Joe Biden's candidacy. But they swept it under the rug. Oh, nonsense. He's just an old man, you know. That creepy picture with him sniffing a little girl and whispering in her ear. 
That's just an old man doing old man things. But those chickens have come home to roost. The chickens have come home to roost. And now you can't dismiss it. You can't sweep it under the rug. You can't slide on through to the next phase of your dictatorship. It's time to pay the piper. And and just for the for the sake of argument, just just say, you know, that he was thoughtless, which is bad. Because, you know, being thoughtless and doing these things in a thoughtless manner shows you where his head is. Shows you where his whole, I, where, where he is. He's in the bubble. He's in the sphere. Twelve years. He's been practically untouchable. Twelve years. I thoughtlessly did it. I didn't even think about it. I don't even remember it. Oh, Jesus Christ. You mean to tell me that you've been doing this? Okay, I can understand that you used to do this. You used to be this way. You used to hug and kiss people. But on this, in this time, in this day and time, with this culture, you had three daughters, 26 and 23. You mean to tell me you didn't know that the goalpost had been moving all this time? Which, again, let's say for argument. And let me go back to my point. Let's say for argument, he was, it's a generational thing. Yeah, he, you know, he doesn't mean anything about it. But you see, I can't even make that as a as a sound kind of opposite. I can't even play devil's advocate on that because the the noise on this on sexual harassment is so loud. The Me Too movement, the the uh, Times Up movement, all these movements are out here. You can't even make a rational, sound argument and play devil's advocate for this kind of behavior because it's obvious so obvious that things in this world have changed. Culture has changed. So even if you were doing this years ago and this was always how you were and always how you are, it has to bring home something to you here in your home, in your brain, in your mode of thinking as a public figure that God, I can't go around doing what I used to do. You never know what might happen. I can't go around kissing on people because you never know. Somebody might misinterpret that. I can't touch people, uh, you know, 
just reach out and touch somebody on the shoulder. You can't do that. Because that may mean something misinterpreted. You may not have the intention of sexual harassment. But you can't control how somebody else takes it. And the very fact that he didn't even occur to him, and these are his own words, not mine, you heard them. It didn't even occur to him. that change has to take place. You have to be thoughtful in what you're doing. You have to be thoughtful in what you're saying. You have to be thoughtful in how you approach people. What used to be is no more. You can't go around with the inappropriate jokes. You can't go around being insensitive. He, and he knew he was insensitive and off-putting. He knew it. He understood that. My sense of humor can be off-putting and insensitive. But he did it anyways. So you see why I had to like get in here and 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 you know, grind it up and 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 because he in in the same he's saying all of this. This is what he is saying. And then he goes on, and you know, we did it together, brother. You know, he has the three daughters, and he goes, "Well, I made a mistake. I live my life through my three daughters." No, you don't. We, you know, stopped the infection. No, you didn't. We know what you did. I'm not going to go over it again, but we, we know what you did. And you can't convince me that the reason why he refused that hospital ship was because Trump sent it to him. He didn't use the makeshift hospitals. But I'm not going to go over that again. I'm not going to go over that again. I've already said enough about that. You know, if you don't know what he did, well, you live under a rock. But this guy, this guy was so divisive, so nasty, so vindictive, and he's talking, he's singing a kumbaya at the end of his speech. Kumbaya, we did it together. We did it together. And these are just the two corruptions that got him uh, noticed. We don't even want to talk about the other corruption that don't even get talked about over the 12 years. Oh, and that $15 an hour minimum wage. Crap that he's he's singing the tune. Oh, we got the fit. That's only in New York City. New York City only. The rest of the 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 uh, state gets twelve fifty or thirteen. 
But New York City gets $15 an ounce. He didn't raise the tide in all the boats. Just in the boats where the people are. And as for New York, New York is dying. Upstate New York, you can't get anybody to come up here and do business. Amazon came and looked around. They're like, no, thank you. You you go on. We'll go look someplace else. Businesses are leaving in droves. People are thinking about leaving in droves. They're, they're thinking about their next two years, or next year, and how they're going to get the hell out of New York. Nobody's coming here. The Blasio put that little vaccine thing in there. He doesn't have to worry about it. Not too many people are coming here. I don't see any evidence that business is booming enough for people to come in here and for this thing to mean any anything different from anybody. But the gall of this person, this Andrew Cuomo, and let's not even get into the, 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 the absolute, oh, God, Chris Cuomo and that CNN garbage, that dung heap that is CNN, and how any respectable news organization would fire his butt on the spot. But they won't. They won't. Birds of a feather stick together. Flies go to shit. You know, it's the same thing. Oh, that's what he thought all his life. He's been getting away with it for years. He never thought that this was going to the, the very thing to bring him down. His proclivities. His attitude. His arrogance. He never thought that those were going to bring him down. Oh, Lord. At least he didn't come up with the, the vast right-wing conspiracy that Hillary Clinton did when Bill Clinton was caught in the White House with the intern. At least he didn't come up with that. He, he suggested it, but he didn't outright say it. But he's done. Andrew Cuomo has resigned. And he gave his speech. This rip-rousing bullshit speech. Well, I have gone on about this. He'll be gone in 14 days. His kingdom will be dissolved, at least partially. And now, we have to get rid of the court jester, Bill de Blasio. Anyway, that concludes this portion of my podcast um stay tuned i have another portion of the podcast coming up it's going to be very long i am 
full, 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 full of vinegar today. And so, if you have made it with me this long, thank you. I appreciate you. If you want, leave me a, a voice message. Contact me on Twitter. Links will be in the description or at the end of the podcast. Again, thank you. For those of you who made this far, see you soon. You are listening to the Black Eye Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the third segment of my podcast. I am your host, Michelle, and this is The Black Eye. You will never guess what is hidden in the infrastructure bill. I know you might have heard of the VMT, the Vehicle Miles Tax, where in its infancy, what the government wants to do is introduce a plan to uh, states and municipalities to uh, find a way to charge people who drive long distances uh, a tax. I'm suspecting that this tax is in addition to the gas tax already attached. But um, this is what they want to do. They want to charge per mile how many miles you have to drive, and they want to find a way to tax you. And it's called the Vehicle miles tax. Something else that's sneaky and far more insidious, uh, very insidious, I call it sneaky and insidious because it's way under the radar and nobody's ever talking about this because you don't even see this coming, is uh, the federal surveillance, which ironically enough, not even ironically, but sneakily enough, is hidden in the infrastructure bill. And this is a story broken uh, from USA Today. And it uh, it reads as follows. I'm going to read you the article and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Because if you think financial affairs are private, you need to think again. Unnoticed by most Americans, the federal government has constructed a vast surveillance regime that if left unchecked, threatens to destroy our right to financial privacy. The government's push to expand financial surveillance surfaced most recently in, of all places, the proposed infrastructure bill, which contains a provision designed to allow government to hoover up information about cryptocurrency. Fortunately, the provision sparked pushback from several senators, but still, the proposed reporting requirements are likely to be narrowed, not eliminated. The provisions in the infrastructure bill are part of a larger push to force transparency onto cryptocurrency. In the last days of the Trump administration, the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network proposed a rule that would extend certain bank reporting laws to over $10,000 cryptocurrency transactions. And far from reversing course, the Biden administration recently endorsed that proposal as part of his new American Families Plan, 
which aims to use the information to increase tax enforcement. And cryptocurrency is just the beginning. The administration's tax plan would also require that all financial institutions monitor and report on the gross inflows and outflows on all business and personal accounts. In other words, the government would have an eye on how much you put in the bank as well as how much you take out. The administration calls this intrusive warrantless snooping by the anodyne name Comprehensive Financial Account Reporting or CFAR. All of this is just the latest front in an attack on financial privacy that began in 1970 with the passage of the Bank Secrecy Act, a law enacted to do the opposite of what its name suggests. The Bank Secrecy Act required banks to begin filling or filing reports with the government detailing the activities of their customers. The government surveillance scheme has steadily expanded from there. Today, Banks and other financial institutions are required by federal law to trawl their customers' data to report anything that might be considered suspicious. And they face steep fines and other penalties if they fall short of the job. In January, for instance, the government fined Capital One $390 million for its insufficient zeal in service of this surveillance regime. The amount of financial data reported to the government is staggering. In 2017, the president of the Clearinghouse Association testified before Congress that the nation's largest banks file a suspicious activity report once every minute. A subset of those reports leaked to the public last year, despite constituting only about 2% of suspicious activity reports filed between 2011 and 2017. They described over $2 trillion in transactions. So basically, what they're going to be doing is they're spying on our bank accounts. And remember I did a podcast, I don't know how many people listen to it, about ADL, the uh, Anti-Defamation League, and a few other pseudo-leftists anti-hate groups, and PayPal excuse me, are partnering to stop hate by monitoring and flagging and not allowing uh, money to be raised or associating with money being raised and messing with people's money, essentially, and keeping them from doing criminal activity. But this goes further than that because the government itself is now expanding its reach into your private business by pressuring the banks to monitor everything that you do. How much money you deposit, how much money you take out. And it's all an effort to crack down on cryptocurrencies. Because, you know, they can't control cryptocurrencies. You know, they can't control it. They can't do anything about it. There's nothing physical that they can, they can, uh, they can 
actually get their hands on. You know, it's it's money that's put aside. They, they can't do anything. And you know how the government is when it can't, it's not about them. It's outside of their scope and their reach. They're going to find a way to do, to, to, to reach out there, to stretch out its long tentacles and, and, and spy on everyone to catch some sort of tax fraud or some sort of suspicious activity. And um, they're using the Families Act. They're using all the cushy words, you know, the American Something Act and this child, this act. And it's all very nice and, and, and harmless and, you know, oh, they're protecting families. Oh, they're protecting this one. But really, they're just mining information. And this is in dangerous hands. I'm sorry, but it is. You know, what does the government need with your banking information if you are not if they have no probable cause to have it. What are you doing with that? Why do you have that? Why do you need that? If there is no probable cause to have this information, why do you need to mine it? And it's hidden very discreetly in the infrastructure bill. The, the infrastructure bill that went through the House and passed on Tuesday. It goes on to read this. Let me get back here. The amount of financial data reported to the government is staggering. In 2017, yeah, I read that, okay. And having involuntarily conscripted the banks as surveillance agents, the federal government is also waging war on cash. Tracking, tracking it, seizing it, and otherwise making it difficult to handle cash transactions without government having to be informed. Using civil, civil for feature, the government routinely seizes cash from travelers at airports, on trains, and on the side of highways for no reason other than those travelers are carrying large amounts of cash. The government then turns the presumption of innocence on its head by forcing these property owners to prove a lawful source for, for their cash in order to get it back. What's up with that? You have cash. You're traveling around with large parts of cash and they confiscate your cash, your money, without probable cause. And then they, you have to prove where you got the money. Even though there's, there's no reason for them to think of you as a criminal or think of what you're doing as criminal activity. In other words, the government cannot monitor cash the way it monitors the banking system. So it treats people who carry cash like criminals, even though carrying cash is not a crime. No, it's not a crime. 
Earlier this year, the government opened a new front in the war on cash when it broke open more than 800 safe deposit boxes in Beverly Hills, California. Oh, I didn't hear this. The government has now commenced civil forfeiture, I'm sorry, I can't speak, proceedings against over 400 of those boxes, seeking to forfeit more than $85 million in cash, plus millions in gold, precious metals, and other valuables. The government has no evidence that these box holders violated any law, and yet it is forcing them to come forward to prove their own innocence. In the government's view, having cash in a box is enough to make you a presumptive criminal. What the hell? It's cash. It's money. It's legal tender. But now they have forced open safe deposit boxes. Safety deposit boxes. Things that are private that you want to keep safe, things that are secure things that are yours, things that the government has no probable cause to bother you with, they're opening up your boxes and going into them. So, is there a right to financial privacy? Goes on to read, the government's action suggests it thinks the answer to that question is no. But the framers would have thought differently. Under the Fourth Amendment, the government needs a warrant based on probable cause of some wrongdoing, not merely a hunch or some general suspicion to search our personal how, persons, houses, papers, and effects. And papers surely includes financial records. In fact, a desire for financial privacy was one of the main drivers of the Fourth Amendment. As the Boston Tea Party demonstrates, the founders were no friends of the taxman, and they objected to the intrusive searches by British tax collectors. As a result, as the Supreme Court observed in a 1977 case, one of the primary evils intended to be eliminated by the Fourth Amendment was the massive intrusion of privacy undertaken in the collection of taxes. At the Institute for Justice, we have successfully litigated cases that stop civil civil forfeiture, forfeiture, well, God, I can say that word, and structuring abuses. And we're now litigating the contest, the government's attempted forfeiture of the Beverly Hills safe deposit boxes. We likewise are opposing the extension of bank reporting to cryptocurrency. Like the framers, we believe financial privacy matters. If the government can destroy financial privacy, it can destroy privacy altogether. After all, almost anything meaningful that you might want to do in life requires at least some expenditure of funds. Yet, if current trends continue, we will find ourselves living in a financial fishbowl where almost everything we do is subject to the government's surveillance machine. And that is under the infrastructure bill. Now, that, that's the power that they already had. And now they're expanding that power. And they very quietly put that 
that into law. Very quietly. Very quietly. Nice, unobtrusive names. You know, American Families Clan. American Families Clan. Comprehensive Financial Account Reporting. I mean, really. And it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It's, it's all tying in. You know, you may think that the vaccine mandates because they're pounding it in your head that this is a good thing, this is a good thing, this is a good thing, it's for the public health, it's for the public health. I, I, and I know nobody wants to go back to, and listen to me bang that drum, but that drum keeps echoing throughout our lives. First, they want your financial privacy. And he, he very put, it's in the bill. It's in the infrastructure bill. It's hidden in there. And both parties passed it yesterday. They passed it on Tuesday. And every time you turn around, The tentacles of the government keep slowly insinuating itself into various parts of your life and taking rest at your freedom, at your choices. The media and big tech are just one of their many tentacles that they use to manipulate and control you. To control all of us. Yesterday, I was reading an article because I was a bit confused about, and I shouldn't have been, because you know how the media likes to manipulate things, about um, the 70% vaccinated people. I saw, I saw, I heard Jin Saki say we're, we're, we're approaching 70%. I, I saw it in, on, in my feed, 70% vaccination. And I'm just thinking to myself, 70% vaccination. What the hell are they all so afraid of when you have 70% of the people who are vaccinated? And I did the math. There's 300 and some odd people and, uh, you know, 60, 70% of that. And then the numbers start to really come up. And they say, no, it's like 168 million people actually got vaccinated. Well, then I know the numbers now because I was doing the numbers and I knew what 70% was. But then the number that they quoted was not 70%. It was 50% of the people. Less, a little less than 50%. 168 million people. Which is less than 50%. But they said, in, in, a, in a nice little trick of double talk, that 67% of people had started their vaccination. And, and, and it just didn't make any sense. So I'm thinking to myself, what the hell are you trying to convey? Because they're throwing out numbers like there's nobody's business. And it, if you're paying, if you're not paying attention, you, you won't notice it too much because it's very, very, very quickly done, you know, but it's all over the internet, 70% of 
vaccination. But that's not true. It's not true at all. But they keep telling you that. And they keep beating that drum. They keep singing that song. They keep blowing that horn. But they're lying. They're lying big time. And that's why this infrastructure bill is a Trojan horse. Because, yeah, they're doing fantastic things. You know, the bill in and of itself, if you read on the surface, you know, it's standing in on a great big white horse. You know, the white horse is $110 billion for roads and bridges, $39 billion for public transit, $66 billion for railways, $65 billion for expanding broadband internet, $75 billion for the first ever network of of charging stations for electric vehicles. That should be interesting. $21 billion to respond to environmental concerns like pollution. $73 billion to modernize America's energy grid. These are all overdue things. These are these are infrastructures breaking down things that ought to have been done 30 years ago. And if you're looking at just that, you would say to yourself, it's about damn time. And it is. That's the truth. It's about damn time. But hidden in this bill is more government control in cities slinking around in the grass. You don't even see it coming because you're so happy to see that broken down bridge that's been falling apart and you're terrified to walk under it or drive under it, lest some peace fall on your car or, you know, heaven forbid. You're happy that the, that piece of crap road you've been driving on is finally going to be fixed. It's good to see that the electric grid is going to be updated once and for all. To modernize it so that our electronics and all the things that we are now, you know, evolving into. We can finally have a grid to support our computers and, and our gadgets. But underneath all of this, the infrastructure bill is the quiet, quiet, and I keep calling it the tentacle, because that's what it is. You know, they're stretching out their tentacles and they're feeling about and they're grabbing things very quietly, taking them out. They're invisible. You don't even see them coming in. But they're trying to get at you. They're trying to get at me. They're going into your money. That's why they want to eliminate cash, because they can't control cash. You can't monitor cash. You can't monitor cryptocurrencies. You, they have nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you at all. But I tell you what else is in, in in the bill that's in its infancy. So far, they have no way of, of implementing this. I, 
I'm curious to see where this is going to go. I don't want it to go anywhere. But it's called the, you might have heard of it too. It's called the Vehicle Mile Tax. Vehicle Mile Tax. So my understanding, and if, you know, if we make it to the next segment, but my understanding is this, that if you are driving, you have to go long distances, and I guess you're using a gas car, they're going to charge you for the miles. But you won't be paying your state and local government. You'll be paying the federal government on a quarterly basis. And what building, whatever his name is, wants to do, because he's the secretary of whatever he is, the secretary of, transport secretary, he wants truckers and, and people who do long hauls, he wants them to sign up for a voluntary program so that their mileage can be monitored so they can pay a tax on it. Because currently, they have no way of implementing a mileage tax. They want one. They want one. But, but they can't do it to 300 and some odd people, million people, and, and millions of cars. So they want you to volunteer. So that you can, so they can tell you, or punish you, or whatever, charge you for the kind of vehicle you drive and the time of day that you drive it. That's what they want. They want to find a way to be up in your business some more. Not that they're not in your business already. Incentives, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We have to incentivize people. So, the infrastructure bill, as good as it is on the surface, much needed. The grid, the roads, the bridges especially. Broadband, yes. And these are just two, two, two uh, things that are caught in the bill. God knows how many others. God knows how many others. How, how, how much more will the government take? How much more? power, how much more authority, how much more of your privacy will be, will be signed away. That's why the infrastructure bill is a Trojan horse. It's a Trojan horse for what really is going on. Now you might think I'm crazy. It's all right. It's okay. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. I really hope that it isn't a nice attempt at a power grab. But Obama used to say it. Never waste a good crisis. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. 
Yeah, don't put a good crisis to waste or something like that. And they know they have to move fast because 2022 is right on their heels. It is on their heels. It is here. It is now. It is happening. They know they have but a short time to get this power grab. Anywho, what do you think? Think I'm being paranoid? And just for the record, just because they're paranoid, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> it all ties in together, though. It, it ties into the, the papers that you need to get in, the vaccine papers. Again, they're making you think this is all for your good. This is for you. This is for your good. It's the big shiny red apple. It's beautiful. It looks delicious. What's inside? Anywho, this podcast has run a little bit long today because, like I said, I had a lot to uncover. I really didn't do as much as I would like to do. But um, I have other things that I have to do. Listen, if you have made it to with me, if you have made it through this entire podcast, thank you. I appreciate it. I look forward to hearing from you uh, through Twitter, through um, the voice message system here at Anchor. Uh, I will leave a link in the description because I am terrible at that long-winded kind of thing, and I'm going to practice it and put it here on the program. But thank you again, and you have a great and wonderful day. Bye-bye.